Welcome to Sustainable Business Fridays. I'm your host, Katie Elman. Sustainable Business Fridays is the first podcast of its kind, bringing together students in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, not-for-profits, social entrepreneurship, and more. Twice monthly, these conversations go live via iTunes and Google Play. This week, I'm joined by Eben Goodstein, Director and Faculty at Bard MBA and the Director of the Bard Center for Environmental Policy. We're speaking with Carrie Krasinski, author, lecturer, educator, and Executive Director of the Network for Sustainable Financial Markets. Much for joining us today. Um, there's probably no more important topic to be talking about. Uh, you know, finance is not something that's at the top of most people's minds when we are talking about sustainability. But at the end of the day, if we're if we're really going to meet the needs of 10 billion people you know, on this one planet, then we've got to figure out how to move a lot of money, uh, trillions of dollars, um, out of financing the bad stuff and into financing the good stuff. So. Um, uh, it's a real pleasure to have you here as, as a pioneer in this space and somebody who's been thinking about it for a, a really long time. Uh, and I want to sort of tee this up by just acknowledging that you're the author now of, of three different books, um, kind of coming out in, uh, what is it, roughly kind of three-year intervals um, in this space. Uh, and I think for our audience, it might be interesting to, for you to go back to 2008 and, and talk about a little bit about the theme of the first book, the theme of the second book, and then what's new about um, sustainable investing revolutions in theory and practice. Oh, great. Thanks, Even. Great to be with you. Uh, couldn't agree more that uh, steering capital uh, has become a uh, uh, present-day imperative. Uh, it's great to see the growing interest in in the space, and we have been at this for a little while, going back to 2007, uh, when we uh, first worked on our initial book, Sustainable Investing, The Art of Long-Term Performance, uh, timed perfectly for the financial crisis, uh, uh, which was an intended uh, attempt to kind of try to steer the field of what used to be known more broadly as sustainable, uh, socially responsible investing uh, into a more positive uh, uh, bent. Uh, the field grew up over uh, the last uh, four plus decades, came out of more negative approaches, and Nick Robbins, myself, uh, uh, thought that it would be important to try to help steer the field towards more, a more positive direction. That book did come out in 2008, um, and it was a bit of a line in the sand as to how uh, the field was starting to uh, try to reshape itself. Uh, fast forward a few years, the thought was, well, let's now do a book on uh, what investors are actually doing in the space. So that was Evolutions in Sustainable Investing, which uh, came out in late 2011, basically 2012, uh, looked at 15 fund managers, had contributions from uh, thought leaders such as Paul Hawken and uh, regional perspectives. Uh, so it's a nice compendium for those interested in seeing, uh, you know, what was happening in the space, and we continue to use that in our uh, teaching. Uh, fast forward five years, and now we have our new book, uh, Sustainable Investing, Revolutions in Theory and Practice, which I'm sure we'll talk further about 
today. And uh, it's very much intended to be a look forward at what investing needs to be going forward to solve the problems uh, that we all face. Can you just elaborate for folks who aren't as familiar with the field on the difference between positive and negative um, approaches to um, sustainable investing? Sure, absolutely. So, uh, actually, that's described in the first chapter of the new book, which we call, which we've called the Seven Tribes of Sustainable Investing. Uh, two of those uh, so-called tribes are, in effect, uh, a, a values-first approach, which is very much rooted in uh, religious mandates, uh, a desire to uh, divest from South Africa during the age of apartheid, uh, going back um, concerns about weaponry or even alcohol and tobacco. Uh, so there's very much a deeply rooted uh, origin in the field uh, towards uh, not owning companies that, that don't meet your personal values. And that continues to be a large portion of this field. Uh, our preference is for a more positive uh, approach, which we describe as value first. And actually, there's a much better financial performance uh, from that um, perspective that's been experienced by various fund managers we're happy to talk about. And those are two of the seven tribes that we discuss in the book. Uh, the, great, uh, the great thing about this uh, value uh, angle is that uh, it has the potential to encourage dynamic, which is basically the theme that, we're, that we discuss, that both financial considerations need to be primary if we're going to tackle the problems we face. Uh, as well as the sustainability uh, solutions that we require. So if we can get both of those engines going together in parallel, uh, we end up with a positive dynamic that allows systems uh, to fix the problems that uh, we require, and it's more beneficial economically as well. So this is kind of the doing well and doing good, and, um, and the argument has, has been that sort of the negative screens um, – you know, they were fine and, and people earned money, but they, they didn't outperform the market. And so your book is really interested in sort of how can sustainability become uh, and impact investing actually begin to drive uh, lots of dollars into the space because uh, folks can actually, um, you know, do it at least as well as as the market, if not better, by finding that those companies that are that are doing well both on the sustainability side and the finance side. Exactly. So, you know, in our view, one of the barriers that remains towards uh, scale uh, when it comes to impact investing, sustainable investing, uh, whatever acronym is of choice, is that there is a fairly deep-rooted perception that you leave returns on the table when you take sustainability into account in your investment choices. And that is a partly true mantra, actually, because if you do look at the first wave of socially responsible investing and and the large the, the large billion plus dollar funds that grew up out of that uh, paradigm uh, that first paradigm uh, those funds actually have struggled to perform well and a lot of that has to do with negative screening it, it, it's not by and large a good investment strategy so uh, fortunately the positive approaches have performed much better and we've been writing about that uh, in our three books all along, and it's only becoming more uh, clear that 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 uh, there is a financial argument. So, uh, one of the things that we hope to uh, help tackle is is to 
to cancel that mantra in people's minds that that you are by definition leaving returns on the table that actually there is at least the chance of outperformance by taking these things into account terrific um and i want to come back to this question of scale which is really critical um, but uh, I'd, I'd love, I'm sure audience would love to hear about your work at Brown. Uh, very inspiring, um, the kind of teaching that you've been doing, uh, kind of hands-on teaching of uh, finance for impact or sustainable finance, um, and uh, uh, just how that has played out um, in terms of, of, of uh, engaging the broader Brown community in a conversation about this. Sure, absolutely. Thanks, Ethan. Uh, the Brown experience has been just fascinating. Uh, so uh, I'm a, something of a critic of the divestment movement because, it, again, it falls under the negative screening uh, side of the equation. Uh, you can kind of understand why people feel that way. But, uh, you know, at Brown, there was a fairly visible, vocal uh, divest from coal uh, campaign focused on the so-called filthy 15 companies. Uh, Fairly big movement on campus about five years ago. Uh, a proposal went to the president's office, uh, but she uh, wrote a, a very thoughtful letter uh, as to why Brown would not divest from coal. Uh, she's actually an economist that's concerned about uh, community health, and she could see the systemic challenge and the fact that uh, Brown as a teaching institution couldn't just push the easy button. It actually has to try to examine uh, the complications that might be caused by the loss of jobs, uh, and it actually doesn't solve the problem. So what Brown embarked on was a path to do all the positive things that it could do, that it could do as an institution, and that includes what it might uh, do on the teaching side, what it might do within its investments, and what it might do on research. And those three pillars have been proceeding. Uh, one student in particular, Sophie Purdom, who uh, went on to co-edit the book with and um, uh, teach the class that uh, has uh, come up called the theory and practice of sustainable investing. She actually rose up as a student uh, who was the president of the student run fund, which outperformed the other student run fund, did not look at sustainability, uh, got another $100,000 from operational funds at Brown to manage, uh, got, a lot, got a lot of momentum behind her was uh, brought on as an intern to the Brown Investment Office as a senior last year uh, and looked to develop a class and a fund within the endowment that would be a carve out for donors that would be a sustainable investment. So a pretty uh, grand plan on her part, uh, but one that, you know, the power of one student to be able to drive change is quite clear from her work and time at Brown. So she brought me in to teach the class last year. And the class supported the research of the investment office to choose uh, a partner to, to, to work with on this uh, new fund, which was launched in June of 2016. Uh, it's called the Brown University Sustainable Investment Fund. It has gotten multiple donations uh, and it's going to be, continue to be uh, marketed and championed. And we're supporting it in the class we're doing right now with another 45 students, popular class on uh, we bring in uh, guest speakers, and we actually quantitatively analyze the funds to try to choose the right partner. And we build our own little portfolio as well, which actually went on to uh, outperform uh, just about every large cap growth fund in the United States. The fund we did choose was the Parnassus Endeavor Fund, uh, which uh, was the number one 
large growth fund in the U.S., regardless of sustainability, in 2016. When we chose it, it was a bit under the S&P 500. Uh, over the last year, it's 10% uh, better than the, the S&P 500, so it turned out to be a, an excellent financial choice. Uh, the fund uh, constructs its portfolio around the premise of what are the best companies to work for. Uh, and it's an extremely successful fund. It's been the outperforming fund actually for the last one, three, five, and 10 years, and has grown over the last couple of years from under a billion to now over $3 billion in assets. Terrific. So this is really inspirational, and it's, it's something that the Bard MBA, we want to copy or, you know, sort of uh, follow in your footsteps at Brown and figure out how to do this kind of teaching and then, you know, leverage that to get other folks um, around the country engaged in it. Um, so when you started teaching at Brown, there was already a fund, is that correct? Uh, there was a Brown Social Choice Fund that had yeah. been uh, established maybe 10 years prior. Uh, it had gotten basically one donation, and uh, it really had kind of lost momentum, and it partnered with a fund manager, uh, and it really wasn't uh, it wasn't what everyone was looking for, so we, we, we kind of started from scratch with the new portfolio. Did the students in your class actually make recommendations regarding the the active management of that fund over the course of the class or it sounded like they developed their own independent portfolio independent of that fund yeah actually they did both so the midterm assignment was to do a six fund quantitative analysis uh, which uh, would then result in an basically a consensus view on a fund or funds to recommend uh, we actually ended up doing a paper recommending two funds to the endowment. They did their separate independent analysis and came up with a single fund partner, uh, the Parnassus Endeavor Fund. Separately, the final uh, uh, for the class, final project, was actually the, the, a, a stock pitch effort. Um, so 14 companies were pitched first on financial criteria, then on sustainability criteria, and a final portfolio of five equally weighted uh, stocks was chosen, which went on to perform quite dramatically, uh, positively. Uh, the endowment at Brown has the scope to, to uh, not only uh, do carve-outs like we did on the approval of the investment committee, which has a mandate to maximize financial returns, and we, we operated within that auspices, but also to take direct concentrated positions. So they, they do look at our research and have that ability as well. Terrific. So you all basically were able to work with an existing fund, resurrect it, put a lot more energy behind it, um, have the college, as I understand it, move some of their funds, their endowment funds, into that fund as well. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's an, it, it's an ongoing, I mean, it's primarily in, intended to be uh, an educational uh, uh, opportunity for the community. So we, we intentionally chose a public-facing mutual fund as a partner because we wanted to show, and with no minimum, so we wanted to show the Brown community, A, if you want to donate to the university, you can do so through a sustainable vehicle. Uh, you know, B, that might be a chance to maximize performance. And also when you're making your personal choices, uh, you know, you, have, you can do this too. So it was intended to kind of educate. Uh, it's an, it was an educational opportunity. Uh, you know, as far as brands steering more capital in a sustainable direction, 
uh, it's one of a number of institutions trying to do this sort of thing. It's happening at William, Williams College. It's happening elsewhere. I think you know we have a long way to go for for in general for asset owners, not just endowments, to try to steer more capital in these directions. But it is starting to happen. Yeah, and it's very exciting how the Brown model that you've advanced really sort of is bottom up in the sense that it began uh, with student interest and then got embedded in the educational mission of the college, which then you know, attracted the interest, if you will, of the investment committee. Um, instead of sort of kind of a protest strategy to drive the investment committee, it was much more of an engagement strategy and an education strategy to get them excited about it. That's right. Uh, there's a place for all approaches, perhaps, uh, but uh, what's been most productive has been a positive approach in this case. Uh, yep. It's written up in your book. There's a, a couple terrific chapters on this, so folks can find out more about that in Sustainable Investing Revolutions in Theory and Practice. Um, I wanted to uh, hit an, another couple of, of, of issues in the book, and, and one of them is this question of scale. Um, and, uh, I mean, there has been, uh, I think, thanks to your work and, and sort of also the circumstances of the times that we're living in, I mean, you know, the planet's getting hotter and we're having billions of more people added to the population over the next couple of decades. And we're already fighting over water and oil and topsoil and fish and forests and biodiversity. So these sustainability challenges are, you know, rising in people's consciousness. Um, and so I think that there is a lot of excitement around this idea of moving money into, uh, into the solution space and away from the problem space. But, um, the question, one question is sort of how much opportunity is there out there? When we were at Morgan Stanley about a month ago talking about this or a few weeks ago, uh, they were saying, you know, they were having a hard time finding green bonds uh, for investors who were looking for them. And uh, Generations, uh, Al Gore's fund is capped at 10, 10 billion, right? So um, is, there, is there sort of a shortage of opportunity or is it just, that opportunity needs to be uncovered by smarter investors. Yeah, the, this is a fascinating field uh, for many reasons. Uh, it's you know, it's you can peel the layers of the onion, and there's always more more layers to peel, uh, which is good because you know, in a, in an age where where industries are getting automated and folks want to figure out their next steps, including students of your program. Uh, there are a lot of opportunities here, and they are vast, and there's a lot of uh, breadth to the opportunities, and it relates to your question. So, yes, uh, there actually are, uh, you know, somewhere between 100, and, 100 billion and a trillion dollars of capital commitments that have been uh, made by large institutions such as Morgan Stanley and, and their peers, uh, as well as large pension funds such as New York State Common and others in Europe, especially uh, and the Chinese government. Uh, so there is enormous uh, capital uh, starting to emerge, looking for these solutions. And yes, there's actually well, we need more capital to be deployed. Uh, one of the chapters of the book is on the value of everything, which is roughly 450 trillion dollars in tradable assets or potentially tradable assets, which I think is an important perspective. And about half of that is institutionally managed. Uh, and we need a larger percentage to be going after solutions than is currently going after them. But there is also a, in parallel, series of other 
opportunities that we need to tackle. And one is increasing the issuance of instruments across asset class that seek these solutions, green bonds being one of a number of such uh, uh, in increased uh, opportunities that we require. So uh, investors can struggle indeed to find these opportunities. So they're, they're, the opportunities that are out there are really kind of all over the map. So those who are after sustainability, you know, you can be inside a company driving change. You can be at a government level trying to establish policy, setting incentives, in doing assurance, uh, data, uh, and, and so there's so many opportunities that, uh, you know, it's really a big system of opportunities that are emerging, uh, which is arguably exciting because that will create jobs. And if we get it right, we'll solve problems and create more opportunities. And that's kind of what you want. So I look at that as a positive. Yeah, so we're looking for that kind of race to the top, kind of positive dynamic emerging out of these opportunities. Um, and th that kind of takes us over to kind of the data side. And and I would say that, I mean, not only is there on the investment side are you seeing this, you're seeing it also, uh, this move towards, um, you know, the corporate world really engaging with mission and purpose pretty dramatically. So this year, for example, for the first time, the Harvard Business Review included ESG rankings, environmental and social governance rankings, when they, you know, determined their top 100 CEOs in around the world. And they actually asked the top three CEOs uh, whether this stuff was important to them, this idea of social mission, environmental mission as part of their corporate strategy. And they said, absolutely, you know, we want our people to be able to articulate the social environmental problems that we're solving because we want to hire millennials and we need to get our people aligned and motivated. And that, who knows, maybe that was some purpose washing. But um, where I'm going with this is actually this a, a bit of a real, some real interesting dialogue in the book about, uh, in, about environmental, social, and governance data. And uh, there's sort of three interesting chapters in the book. Um, one is about... Um, uh, this idea that there are opportunities out there for, you know, creative investment, active investors. Uh, uh, I think it's the blue, is it the blue sky fund that you're an advisor to? And uh, mm -hmm. they discuss, you know, which is sort of a traditional kind of data mining kind of strategy to identify in the same way that Parnassus did around, um, you know, well, uh, companies that are good to work for, they've got their own kind of, um, uh, uh, what's the word, a proprietary sort of model that mines the ESG data to identify um, uh, companies that are outperforming. So that kind of, that's, that's one strategy. Um, a second chapter says that, you know, the data needs to be kind of tailored, and so companies need to actually think uh, strategically about the ESG data reporting so that this value driver model idea, so that it lines up with you know, you're explaining to analysts how your ESG performance is lining up with, you know, top line improvement, bottom line efficiency improvement, and risk reduction. And then finally, you've got a chapter by Dan Etsy at Yale saying, you know, the data is just terrible and um, you can't really do much with it and we need the government to step in and start to regulate it. Um, so one of the things I love about your books is that this is very much a field that's in progress and there's no easy answers, uh, but maybe you could speak to those views. No, thanks for that. Uh, indeed, the, um, 
one of the things we talk about in the book is that there's a top down bottom up race that's going on because we haven't solved we really haven't solved much of anything uh but the potential is there so there are strategies that have been out there there's been you know tremendous financial success from the likes of generation investment management outperforming benchmarks developing their own data uh using uh perhaps some esg data but they they find uh to be successful you really have to dig in and understand the business and and management and figure out where there is upside uh, and that's a very important way of going about this for those who've been successful parnassus has a similar approach blue sky is one of a number of startup uh, funds that attempts to uh from a bottom-up approach uh you know add uh, to the uh, product mix that's out there Arguably, there isn't enough uh, value-focused uh, uh, products uh, for purpose. As you mentioned, generation is capped. I think it's $12 billion. Uh, they promised their asset owner partners that they would cap the funds. So, uh, and Parnassus has been by far the largest growing uh, value-focused ESG fund manager. Uh, they, were, As a firm, they were under a billion back uh, roughly 10 years ago, maybe even less, and now they're well over 15 billion. So they're the only ESG fund manager that has grown in leaps and bounds that have public funds. Uh, and there's clearly a, a need for more products. So there are a number of startups and some of them are outlined in the book who try to take this uh, approach. There are data challenges. Um, and so, you know, those fund managers were able to parse the data, are able to glean gems uh, and, and make use of it, you know, but uh, what we like to argue for is, um, can we design the outcomes that we seek and then figure out what data we require as opposed to building these sort of huge ESG databases where, you know, sure, there might be purposes for that information, but when you look at the, you know, social issues, for example, uh, the Bangladeshi factory fires, th th those aren't solvable through data, they're solvable through multi-stakeholder dialogues. Um, and, and actual on the ground implementation of of standards that that uh, you know, minimum minimum factory standards uh, you, that's not really a data driven exercise. So a data has its place. Uh, I I like to give space for different views in my books, and uh, you know certainly Yale has an angle on uh, data, um, and I think the field is is challenged by strengths and weaknesses in the data. Uh, so the the point, uh, the opportunity is to design strategies such as the value driver model that we worked on a few years back and continue to evolve to try to show that uh, there actually is a path for companies to increase their sustainability advantage revenue and to increase their uh, efficiencies uh, uh, on the productivity side uh, for better profit through sustainability strategies that make sense for the bottom line and that there is a correlation between performance uh, of well-run companies and those that are looking at these issues. Uh, the two largest purchasers of renewable energy, uh, for example, are Google and Amazon, and they're also two of the most financially successful firms uh, on the stock market. Cool. Well, I, we're coming to the end of our uh, segment here, and I, I wanted to bring this back a little bit to our, our MBA program and, and issues of relevance to our students. What kind of this this idea of of, of investing for impact, sustainable investing, um, really requires uh, an interesting skill set because you need to understand um, both investing and, and finance, 
Um, and you also need to understand impact. Uh, and, um, you know, our MBA program is really focused around primarily the latter right now. So, you know, we're an MBA in sustainability, and our students are really focused on that value driver model that you suggested, you know, what is the business case um, uh, for whatever sustainable vision or initiative you want to test. A lot of careers opening in this space and private wealth management and working for institutional um, clients. You know, do you think that there's going to be increasing demand for folks who have that that combined skill set on the one hand? And then the follow-up to, to, is that how much kind of quant finance do you really have to master to be able to operate effectively in this space? I mean, is this is this the kind of thing where you need to have a you know sort of a you know, a deep dive, you know, finance degree and, um, or is it the kind of thing that you can get involved in if you've got, you know, say three or four semesters focused on this space, but, you know, you're not a quant. I honestly think there's space for everyone uh, of different skill sets. I'm fortunate to have the chance to interact with a lot of students and you know, spend office hours advising them on their future paths as they try to figure that out for themselves. Uh, and you know, th there are all different folks from different parts of the world with different characteristics. Uh, most people have a sort of ESG issue of preference. So one person might want to help solve uh, the challenge of indentured slavery or sexual trafficking. Another student might be more interested in uh, renewable energy. Uh, another student might be interested in getting a position at a, uh, a large corporate try to help drive change from the inside or uh, with consultants, uh, with banks. Uh, there really are, there's a wide range of paths. Uh, and so quantitative skills can be helpful uh, depending on the situation. That's certainly something that a lot of folks will look for even from think tanks and, uh, and not, not just startups, but also uh, hedge funds uh, who are, there's a lot of exploration and uh, quite frankly, I, you know, had you asked me that the quest, this, these questions two years ago, I would have said, well, actually, it might be a bit challenging to get a job. There's a lot of interest. There aren't a lot of openings. But I really think that's changed a lot in the last very short period of time. And we're seeing a rise of social entrepreneurship opportunities left and right in cities like Providence, where Brown is, uh, and elsewhere. Uh, so the opportunities are really all over the map now. And there are tons of job postings that keep emerging uh, across the board. So uh, I think the field is starting to head in a better and better direction. Uh, I think it's going to take demand for more sustainable investing from the average person who sees that it's in their own best financial interest. Uh, I think that this field should only grow as that perception continues to change. Okay. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for joining us today. And again, the book is Sustainable Investing, Revolutions in Theory and Practice, or SCAN. Um, highly recommended. Carrie's books are always uh, just full of, we, we barely scratch the surface. There's discussions of gender diversity and uh, Sharia law, uh, 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 Japanese governance. So there's so much in this book, uh, I, can't, I can't recommend it strongly enough. So, Kerry, thanks for joining us and, and for all the good work that you've been doing in the field. Thanks for having me, Greg. Great to be with you. 
You can find Sustainable Investing, Revolutions in Theory and Practice, and Carrie's other works on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com, as well as on Google Play. Follow Carrie on Twitter at C. Krasinski. Join us for the next Sustainable Business Fridays, where we'll be speaking with Margot Baldwin, president, publisher, and co-founder of Chelsea Green Publishing. Bard MBA in Sustainability. Lead the change. Learn more at bard.edu.